morning will be the last uh, time we'll be in Mark chapter uh, Mark series until the first of the year. Um, we will uh, we're at the halfway point. Uh, chapter eight will end with chapter eight. We'll pick up chapter nine at the beginning of January because next week's Mission Sunday. Then we got Thanksgiving and then Advent is coming, and then we'll do uh, pick back up in Mark. So uh, this morning. Uh, we are finishing up chapter 8 in Mark. Last week, if you remember, Steve talked about chapter 8, verses 21 through 26. It was the interesting healing or miracle of, of the blind man. And as Steve mentioned last week, it was a, a kind of a bridge passage between what the disciples had been doing and the passage today. And so this morning, as we look at this passage, uh, we're going to think about all the things that Jesus has been teaching about because Jesus asked some very pointed questions in these verses that I think are very per pertinent for us today. But before we go there, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, thanks so much for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity you give us to come and to gather, to be together, to be encouraged. God, we thank you so much for Jesus, for his love for us, for his work on our behalf. God, we thank you for your Holy Spirit who dwells in us and empowers us, who teaches us, reminds us. So God, we pray this morning that you would find us grateful, hopeful, encouraged, and ready to receive all that we need to receive from you this morning. Would you take a minute and pray for the person in front of you, or behind you, or beside you, that they would hear and respond to the Lord this morning? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we freely give ourselves to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of the message this morning is Confessing Christ. Now, I want to unpack this just a little bit because most times when we think of confess, we think of something negative or sin that we need to, to get out or get off our chest or, or talk about. But there's also another aspect to confess, and it's this. It's that we, we tell or make known, we declare, or we, we show that what we are adhering to, or we give evidence of. And so this morning, I want us to think about confession in a sense of our lives giving evidence, displaying, showing what we give adherence to, which is Christ, confessing Christ. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 27 through 38, but right now we're just going to look at verses 27 through 30, and that's Peter's confession of Jesus. Verse 27 says this, Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about them. Two great questions. Now, if you know me, if you've been around me at all, you know that I love to ask questions. And I ask questions because a good question 
will not only give you an answer, but also reveal the person's heart, motive, opinions, and feelings about what you're asking about. And Jesus asks some really good questions and gets the motives and feelings from his disciples. Now, it's not only a pivotal point in our study in Mark, because Mark chapter 8 is halfway through the book, but also a pivotal point in the life of Jesus. Jesus is uh, uh, halfway through the book, and Jesus at this point is a pivotal point because he knows what's coming, which is the cross. And so Jesus wants to make sure that his disciples know who he is. Pivotal point. And so he asked the first question, Who are people saying that I am? And the disciples answered, Well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, and others say that you're a prophet. Now, Jesus' first question is about human perspectives and what people are thinking about him. What are his attitudes about him? And they share John the Baptist, Elijah, and other prophets. Now, that's pretty good company. They recognize that Jesus is somehow connected to God and probably even a messenger from God or for God. But all three fall short of the full truth. Now, just as a side note, i got to ask this question. It's a subtle point, but I think a powerful one. How did the disciples know what the people were thinking about Jesus? How did the disciples know that they thought he may have been John the Baptist, Elijah, and another, or another prophet? We have to conclude that the disciples were paying attention. They were listening they were probably even asking. And it sort of begs the question for us. So let me ask you, what are people saying about Jesus? In our society, in our culture, in our neighborhoods, what are people saying about Jesus? Do we know? Are we listening? Have we asked? So let me ask, what are people in Hilton Head Plantation saying about Jesus? Palmetto Dunes, Port Royal, Long Cove, Shipyard, Sea Pines. Well, let's go across the bridge. What are people in Bluffton saying about Jesus? What are our schools, what are our kids hearing and thinking and saying about Jesus? Primary, elementary, middle, high school, what are they saying about Jesus? Do we know? Have we asked? Do we care? What is our response to people's opinions about Jesus? And we answer that based on how we answer the second question Jesus asked. And he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? Picture the scene. Jesus hanging out with his buddies, his disciples. They're sitting there talking, and Jesus asked them all a question. Hey, who are people saying that I am? What, what's kind of the rumor going around about me? And they pipe up, well, Somebody over here said John Baptist, Elijah, prophets. And then he stops, 
probably a moment of pause, maybe silence, maybe an eye-to-eye conversation with each of them and say, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And so the question is for us this morning, who do you say Jesus is to you? What is your confession of Jesus? Does what you do in your life, the decision-making, the thoughts, confess Jesus? Not what Grace Community Church thinks you should think about Jesus or your Bible study or of the latest book you read. But you, who do you say that Jesus is? And do the people out there know your answer? These are direct questions from Jesus that need to be answered. So Peter's sitting around. Peter steps up and says, you are the Christ. Matthew 16, 16 gives a little bit more and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now this, uh, this, this answer is a culmination of what Steve had been talking about, that it's a bridge of all the things that the disciples have been through, the parables, the miracles, the healings, the teachings. And so Peter steps up. And what the readers of Mark have known all along, Peter confesses with the disciples, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. In the midst of all the different opinions, Peter stood up. One author said this, A true believer is one who is willing, whenever necessary, to fly in the face of popular opinion and openly express a conviction that is contrary to that of the masses. Now let me just ask, if there has ever been a time in history for followers of Jesus to confess Christ, it is now. To know what we believe, to have a conviction about what we believe, and to be able to communicate it with grace and love, that we know Jesus is the living Christ, Son of God. So the application is two questions. One, do you know what people are saying and thinking about Jesus? And does what you know bother you, challenge you, encourage you, motivate you? When I was coaching baseball, hanging out with high school kids and middle school kids, I would ask and talk about God. And the answers and the response I would get from kids would just break my heart. But you know what? It's the same with adults. There are people out there that don't know who Jesus really is. And some here this morning say, well, Matthew, I can't help what they know about Jesus. And you know what? I would say you're exactly right. You cannot help what they have known about Jesus. But with God's grace and with God's leading and the Spirit's instruction, 
we can help them know for sure. And some have said to me, well, Matthew, that's not my responsibility. Well, if it's not the church's responsibility, then whose is it? Jesus is asking some really pointed questions to the disciples and I think to us. And so the question really comes down to, in this passage, who is Jesus to you? Who do you say that Jesus is? There may have even been a third question kind of swirling among Jesus and the disciples because Jesus knew who he was. And so we can say, who does Jesus say he is? I'm going to agree with him. It's the greatest and deepest question that you could ever answer. And let me just stop and say this. If you can't say with Peter, he is the Christ, the son of the living God. He's the one who took away my sins on the cross. He's the one that made me in a relationship with Jesus. He's the one that I cling to. Then this morning, we want to help you understand that answer. There's no greater question to be answered than who do you say Jesus is? Now, after Jesus asked those important questions, verse 31 says he began to teach them. And what was he teaching them? Well, verse 31 and 32. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, think about this just for a second. It wasn't just a couple verses prior to this, that Peter stood up and said, you are the Christ, son of the living God. And so we see Peter go from really, really right to really, really wrong. Verse 32, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. How could he have gone to such extremes? Now think about Peter's context. Jesus, referring to himself, says the son of man which he hasn't said since uh, Mark chapter 2, verse 28. And he predicts that the Son of Man must suffer through the elders, the chief priests, the Sanhedrin, the scribes, and he will suffer at their hands, but he'll rise again in three days. Now, the reason Jesus, scholars think, that he says the Son of Man is because the Son of Man was a position of authority. And if you remember over the past uh, eight chapters of Mark, Jesus has bumped heads against the authority of, of the Jewish leaders. He set himself up against the religious leaders. And so Jesus gives us this prediction, and within this prediction, he gives five distinct characteristics. The first one, it says that the Son of Man must suffer. Now notice that he didn't say, I'm thinking about suffering. This is an option that I'm looking at. He says, I must do this. This is something that has been uh, planned since the beginning of the world. I must follow through with my Father's will. The second distinction is this. That was shocking to the disciples. Think about it. You're sitting there with Jesus, and he's saying, I must suffer and die. And he, the disciples are thinking, but you just raised people from the dead. You're the Messiah. It's shocking. And you know what's interesting, just as a side note? 
They don't question his rising again. They question his suffering. They don't ask him about the resurrection, only his death. Jesus' prediction was also informative. Jesus says these are the people who are going to do it. Chief priests, scribes, Pharisees. And what I find really interesting is that all throughout Mark, in fact, all throughout the Gospels, the people, the religious leaders who were supposed to be the people to protect the people and connect the people to God were the ones that were going to kill God. Informative. Jesus' prediction was also very sensitive and wise. Think about the disciples. Jesus knew that the disciples loved him, that they had left everything to follow him. And he wanted to know them to know what was going to happen. He doesn't give them all the details. That's very sensitive of him. But it's also very wise of Jesus to say, this is what's going to happen. So you need to know who I am. Very wise and sensitive. And the last thing, it was clear. All throughout our study in Mark, we read Jesus teaching in par- parables metaphors, analogies, and we see the disciples coming back to like an inner scene with Jesus and say, time out, Jesus, I don't get it. Tell me again. And he would say, do you not yet understand? This time, verse 32 says, and Jesus said it to them plainly. No metaphors, no analogies. He wanted the disciples to fully understand. And at first glance, you see Peter... In this scene, you want to shake your head and say, Peter, how could you get it so right? Three or four verses later, you get it so wrong. I mean, who in their right mind would rebuke Jesus? To try to tell Jesus that he's not thinking right. That he's not and could not be serious about what he's saying about suffering and death. But maybe, maybe Peter didn't say anything we haven't thought or even wanted to say. What does it mean to rebuke? To rebuke, at its basic level, means that when someone, when their view when their opinion, when their way of thinking or way of doing things doesn't line up to ours, we do one of these. Come here just a minute. Let me enlighten you on the correct way to do things. And that's sort of what Peter's doing. Jesus, come here just a minute. Can you imagine? But if we're honest, maybe at some point we've disagreed with Jesus too. Asking why he doesn't do what we want. Or at least think what we think is right. Or what he ought to do for us. Think through our study. We've asked these questions. If he can cast out demons and silence the crazy guy in the synagogue, surely he can silence the voices that drive us crazy. If he can make a paralytic walk, why are so many people now still crippled by fear or addiction? If he can calm the sea, surely he can calm the storms in in our world, in, in my world. If he can let one outcast, socially religious, unclean woman get close enough to him to touch the hem of his garment, 
then why, Jesus, are there so many marginalized out there? Why haven't they been able to touch you? Jesus, if you can feed 5,000 and you can feed 4,000, why is there so much hunger in the world? Jesus, if you could do all that, why are you not doing that stuff now? And we pull Jesus over and say, listen, come here. And in our own way, we rebuke Jesus. It's one thing to question what's going on. Jesus, help me understand. Jesus, I don't really like this. I don't really want this. But to rebuke goes a step further and says, you must do what I think is right. And that's what Peter is doing here. Peter presumes to pull Jesus to the side and tell Jesus all that he's doing wrong with this statement. Now, can you imagine telling Jesus he's wrong? Pretty bold if you ask me. That's why Jesus says in verse 33, but turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And he said to Peter, no, you come here. And he said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Peter, it's not about what Jesus and God the Father wants. It's about what you want. Now, why was Peter so stern? Get me behind me, Satan. That's pretty strong words. It's because Peter's thoughts are not on human's thoughts or divine thoughts, not on, on God's ways, but his own ways. And think about this. If he would have listened to Peter, we would still be left hopeless. Jesus is declaring that when human way opposes God's way, it's not just wrong, but it's evil and opposes the plans and words of God. There's no middle ground. Now, what's really interesting is that one commentator put this same scenario when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, that Peter was actually asking Jesus to fall down and worship him. And Jesus responds the same way, get thee behind me. Now, what's even more interesting is this word I found this week. When Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, he uses this Greek word, opisomau. Opisomau. That's a cool way to say it. Just say opisomau. It's like really cool. Opisomau. You're going to be saying opisomau all day. Now, this phrase, get behind me, it has a couple of meanings. One is, it means don't get in my way. It also means don't hinder my plans, but there is a third way to look at this word, and it means you will return to the position behind me. Opisomau, return to the position behind me and follow me. That's what it means to be my disciple. And what's really cool about this word, this opisomau, is the same word that Jesus used in Mark chapter 1, verse 17, when he told Peter, Uposomau, follow me. And he's using it again in the sense of, Peter, get back in your place, behind me. Follow me, fall in line with me in my way of thinking. Get behind me so you can watch me see how I live in love. So Jesus defines what it really means to follow him and confess him in verse 34. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples, and he said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, 
he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Same word to come after me, opisomau, is used here again. Come after me, get behind me. A follower, disciple, is defined as one who has taken his position behind Jesus. Now, Jesus gives clear responses to a disciple, and those confessing Christ must have. The first thing he says is that self-denial. You must deny himself. Now, when you think of the word deny, most people, if they think they're denied something, they, they get a little, little, little roughed, little rough feathers. You tell, you tell me I can't have something? There's this, there's this tendency to kind of defend. Does your mind think when you say denial that it's easy or hard? When Jesus uses the word deny here, he doesn't mean self-hatred. He doesn't mean a, a kind of a, a self-shaming or abuse. He just simply means that self-denial means that you take yourself off the throne and put Jesus back where he's supposed to go. It's a denial, a renouncement of self as the motivator for your life. It's what Galatians talks about, living in the flesh or living by the Spirit. And so the question is, in our self-denial of discipleship, how often do we understand and practice our faith as a daily self-denial? A daily denying of control, of letting go and falling more in love in line with Jesus. The second phrase or response of a disciple is cross-carrying. Take up your cross. Now this, this phrase has always had me curious. Most times when we hear people talk about picking up their cross, it's kind of like, oh. I'm a martyr for Jesus. I, I got to carry my cross today. There's no air conditioning in my car. I'm suffering for Jesus. And didn't get ketchup for my fries. God must be testing me. I'm just carry my cross. Cross carrying is loaded with a lot of associations. But the cross-carrying Jesus is referring to is the freedom that comes through submission to God's will. If you think about Jesus, Jesus willingly went to suffer for the glory and sake of his Father, a desire that he would be crushed for our sin. Cross-carrying is certainly associated with suffering, but with a proactive mindset and heart to surrender and do the will of God. If you remember, it was the joy set before him that he endured the cross. Now think with me just for a second. You and I know about the cross. We have a New Testament theology about the cross. The work of Jesus on the cross. The cross had not happened yet for the disciples. So when Jesus says, take up your cross, what was he talking about? What would the disciples have connected with? In the disciples' mind, the cross is that of a condemned man who is forced to take up his cross to the place of execution. He's forced to do that. But a disciple, Jesus says, is that they deny self and they voluntarily pick up their cross. What the condemned does under pressure and conviction, the disciple does willingly. 
They voluntarily accept the pain and the suffering. It's an obedience to the will of God. Now, the last thing Jesus says about a disciple, deny self, carry your cross, and then he says, follow me. Follow me. Get in place. How many of you, growing up, played that kid's game, follow me? Follow the leader? Remember that game? It's what Jesus is asking of the disciples. But if you remember playing that game, if you're in front of the leader, how can you ever know what the leader's doing? And so, if we are to be in front of Jesus, we will never see how to follow him. If we continually put ourselves up front, we'll never know what he's doing. And following Jesus is the greatest act of trust because not only does a disciple deny his right to lead, but we submit to the will and leading of Jesus. We follow because we trust the one who is leading. Self-denial, cross-carrying, and following Jesus. All these elements together define what it means to come after Jesus. Now, just as a point of clarity, none of these can be accomplished on our own. But it takes the power of God and the power of the Spirit. Jesus goes on in verse 35 to say, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. Billy Graham said this, Salvation is free, but discipleship costs everything we have. Jesus continues asking great questions. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Many of you have seen, maybe even experienced, the great irony or contradiction paradox of life. It is quite possible for a person in one sense to make a huge success of life and at the same time be living a life that is not worth living. And so Jesus says, forfeit, forfeit for your soul. Forfeiting is a choice, not something that happens to us. We choose to forfeit. Do you remember Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, how he starts out the book? Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. But do you remember how he summarizes his entire life and experience. This is Solomon, the wisest and wealthiest man of Scripture. He says this, The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep His commandments, because this applies to every person. Solomon said, Everything is meaningless if God's not in it. That you and I must be aware and forfeit everything That God's not in. I love this verse in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 15, 19. Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, I will restore you. Before me you will stand, and if you extract the precious from the worthless, you will become my spokesman. I, I just love that phrase. Extract the precious from the worthless. I have an illustration for this verse. Several summers, when I ago we our family penny and the two boys got a chance to go gem mining anybody ever done that 
the process is that you purchase the buckets of dirt. And then you take this dirt and you, you pour it into a sifter and you sift. And that process was a lot harder than I thought because you actually had to scrub, scrub these rocks. Your knuckles start hurting. You, you, they start kind of bleeding a little bit. And then after washing and scrubbing, you think you found something. You ask the guy, and he's like, uh, nope, that's not anything. And so you go back at two hours, we scrubbed dirt. <laughs> and many times, in fact, not almost every time, we would take these little pieces of what we thought we had shined, and we'd hand them to the guy, and he'd be like, nope, not it. At the end of two hours, we got two rubies and a sapphire about this big. And I think of this first. Distract the precious from the worthless. I believe this is the picture Jesus is calling his disciples to do. You and I have many opportunities. We will be pulled in many different directions to, to buy dirt. We'll spend time on it. And in the end, we'll realize it's worthless. But I found in my life, I'm not smart enough to know that. That I need someone who knows to come over and say, that's not it. That's not it. That's not it. Someone who knows what's the rubies and the sapphires. One author said, those who see things as God sees them will never spend their lives on things that are worthless and literally soul-destroying. So the question I asked this morning, is there anything that you and I are giving in exchange for our soul? And maybe a question before that, are you convinced that your soul is precious to the Lord? Because it is for your soul that he died. I want to close with a few questions. What areas of your life are you giving in to exchange for your soul? Are, are you constantly going to God for help and extracting the rubies and sapphires of your life? Are you ready in whatever situation or circumstance to confess Christ, to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and say mal, fall in line behind Jesus. Confessing Christ is a choice. So we answer the question this morning. Who is Jesus to me? Who is it that I want to tell or make known? To declare? To give adherence to? To give evidence of? Is it me? Or Jesus? Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the time we've had in your word through the book of Mark. God, in some ways, it does come to kind of a, a culmination for us. And who do we say you are? Really?
God, I pray again if, if there's people here this morning or those watching online that, that don't know for certain, that don't have the, the conviction that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, the one whom if we believe in you, that we will have eternal life. God, I pray this morning if there's anybody here that can't say with Peter and the rest of the believers here that, that you are my Savior, that they would seek us out this morning. And God, for the rest of us, we pray that you would help us pay attention to what people are saying around you, around us about you. God, give us a heart to confess you with our mouth, with our thoughts, with our deeds. And we'll trust you with the results in Jesus' name. Amen.